Okay, our scripture for our sermon can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is John 7, 1 through 24. It says this, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is this that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. The word of the Lord. Well, many people have many different impressions of who Jesus is. Some of them are quite wrong. I remember growing up and my image of Jesus was a Jesus who was meek and mild, who couldn't hurt a fly and had no relevance to my life. But of course, there are many other impressions that people have of Jesus. Somebody see us, see, uh, some people see a stern figure in the sky with a ruler in his hand ready to smack your knuckles as soon as you uh, get out of line. In this passage, we see that the people have mistaken impressions of who Jesus is, and they are affecting how they see them. Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. There is a danger in having a wrong impression of Jesus Christ. We miss what Jesus is all about. And so we must have the right understanding of who Jesus is. We're going to look at three wrong judgments that people have about Jesus in this passage. And we're going to seek to correct them. For when we see Jesus as he truly is, we will worship him. So what are these wrong judgments, these wrong impressions about Jesus in this passage. Number one, that he's simply a charismatic leader. Number two, that he's a human 
teacher. And finally, number three, that he's just a religious figure. A charismatic leader, a human teacher, a religious figure. Jesus is none of those things. He's the Lord. And we're going to look at each one of them individually. So let's look at point number one. He's a charismatic leader. We see here in verse 1 that Jesus is up in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. He's not going in Judea. He's made such an impression, the, the, the southern part of Israel, that the, the leaders have determined to kill him. So he's up in Galilee. But the Feast of Booths is at hand. This is one of the major feasts where people, all the people flock to Jerusalem somewhere around September, October, where they would celebrate the grape and olive harvest. And what they would do is they would build these temporary shelters and they would live in them during the feast to commemorate how God had stood over them as they traveled in the desert, as they had been going uh, to their home. It's a very popular feast. Many, many people would be in Jerusalem. So it says his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Jesus had brothers. These were half-brothers, the sons of Mary and Joseph's. Jesus' father was God himself. And so they were the younger half-brothers of Jesus. And they say that you should go down there, you should go to this feast, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. See, they've seen that Jesus has been doing these miracles in Galilee, the works that he's been doing. And they're saying, you should go down to Jerusalem. You should show all of these people also what you have been doing, that they may see and believe or follow you. For no one, verse 4, works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They're saying, look, Jesus, you're saying that you're the son of God. And if you want people to believe, you can't hide up here in Galilee. You have to go to Jerusalem and you have to perform. You have to perform for all of the people there. You have to put on a show. You need to be a charismatic leader if you want to gain followers. It's ironic that they're saying, Jesus, you need to show yourself to the world when it's precisely the world that will never believe in Jesus. And then it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's amazing. The first 30 years of his life, Jesus' divinity was so hidden that not even his brothers could see. Now, they had seen these miracles, but like so many superficial disciples, they could not perceive the significance of what they saw. They did not see Jesus' real identity and entrust themselves to him. Just a side note, They actually did come to believe and worship Jesus Christ. Acts 1-4 shows that they were among Jesus' followers, but it was not until after the resurrection that they followed Jesus. Well, they're saying go down, but Jesus does not take the bait. And he gives a twofold reason why he's not going to do what they want. The first is in John 7-7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. In other words, the world is not going to accept me, brothers, even if I perform these miracles because of my message. And my message is that their works are evil. In other words, I've not come to amass followers. I've come to testify to the truth that mankind does not live rightly before God. 
that each one of us does evil. That God has revealed his will to each one of our hearts in his word and we reject him. I think Romans 3.10 sums it up as it is written, none is righteous, no, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside and together they have become worthless. So no one does good, not even one. This message won't play well in Jerusalem and it doesn't play well now. We don't like being told that we are not great, that we are doing evil, that we are accountable to someone else for our behavior. The truth of the matter is terms like good and evil have been outlawed in our society, haven't they? You're not allowed to call anything evil. And it's the height of arrogance to point out to other people that what they're doing is evil. But that's exactly why Jesus came. He came to testify, and that is why the world hates Jesus. But Jesus says, there's another reason why I'm not going down to the feast. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Says it again in verse 8, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. In the book of John, whenever it speaks of his time coming, it's speaking of the hour of his crucifixion. Jesus is saying, the way and the manner that I'm going to reveal myself when it is my time to reveal myself is by dying on the cross. His brothers are saying, the way your movement is going to spread and the way you're going to gain followers is through acts of power and gaining prestige. That's how people will believe. But Jesus says, no. The way that I will be effective and capture hearts is by dying on a cross. We have to ask ourselves, how? How can sacrificing yourself and dying a gruesome death at the hands of the Romans gain you followers? But you see, Jesus has come to do more than convince people to follow them, him. He has come to rescue them. Jesus comes and brings the judgment of God, and then he comes to pay the price owed for that judgment. See, his people are bound imprisoned by sin, and he has come to set them free. Colossians 2.13 puts it this way, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, we were dead in our sin and our transgressions. And through Jesus Christ, we were made alive. Our sins were forgiven. Our record of trespasses was canceled. He nailed it to the cross so that we would be free. Jesus is saying, it's in this cross that I will triumph. In fact, in John 12, 32, he said, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He's speaking of being lifted up on the cross and he means all kinds of men to himself. It's in the cross that he will bring his people to himself. And so he has. The cross continues to reverberate through history. This single act of love 
has transformed more people than all the other leaders combined. It was Napoleon Bonaparte who said, Alexander, Caesar, and Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. See, it's his love that leads us to him, that binds us to him, that transforms our heart. It's the kindness of Jesus Christ that leads us to repentance. So I ask you, what sort of leader are you looking for today? Like Jesus' brothers, are you looking for one who wins the world through great speeches, miracles, and demonstrations of power? One who then is worthy of my time and attention? Or are you looking for one who can save you from your sin? Save you from the wrath of God? Save you from yourself? Because it's in his cross that Jesus is revealed. So we must see Jesus for who he really is. The one who came to rescue me. The one who pays my price. The one who cancels my debt. And the one who reconciles me to God. For you can only see him when you see him as he truly is. A crucified savior. This brings me to my second point. That the people were seeing him as merely a human teacher. Verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? See, they have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. They're stunned by his knowledge, his wisdom, and his perception. But they simply see Jesus as an extraordinarily gifted teacher on par with the other teachers of his day. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, the words that I'm speaking are not simply man's words. They're God's words. And I have come to deliver them to you. When I am speaking, God is speaking. It's quite an astounding thought, isn't it? That God has spoken, the one who created the universe, the one who sustains all things, has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. And these words have been written down. And the words that we are speaking, uh, that I'm speaking today, that we are listening to, are the very words of God. And these words have been given to us. See, we have a God who wants to be known who wants us to know what he is like, who wants us to know how to live. But these people are not believing. Jesus goes on in verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, there is a way to know whether my words are God's words. If anyone's will is to do God's will, they will know that Jesus' words are God. See, there's a measure of faith and commitment that has to take place first. 
Before you can accept Jesus' words, you have to commit yourself to doing God's will. To say, I will follow you. And I will do what you want, when you want. And when you have that attitude and spirit, something happens. Something clicks in your mind. And you see Jesus' words for who they really are, what they really are, the words of God. See, we cannot simply set ourselves over Jesus' words, acting as judge and jury, which is exactly what these people are doing. See, they already had God's will. They had Moses' law, right? The revealed will of God. But the problem is they're not following it. Verse 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? See, that's why they're not accepting Jesus' words, because they have not decided to do God's will. Well, what about us? If you want to understand and believe Jesus' words, you must first commit to doing God's will. So have you made that commitment? Have you said to God, I want to do your will. I want to follow you. I will do what you say. Show me your will. For some of us, we haven't done that yet. We'd rather sit in judgment of God's will, deciding when and how to follow, when it suits us and our schedule and our desires. And the result is a half-hearted obedience, which is no obedience at all. And we don't trust and believe Jesus' words. Jesus is saying, my words will mean nothing to you until you commit yourself to follow me. But when you do, my words will come alive. And you will know that they are God's words. Jesus continues in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him, there is no falsehood. Jesus is saying, I am seeking the glory of my heavenly father. And because I am doing so, God has given me these words for you, and these words are true. We live in an age of relativism, where it's claimed that there is no such thing as truth. There are no truths whatsoever in the world. But you see, if there's no such thing as truth, the result is there's nothing you can count on, nothing you can depend on, nothing you can build your life upon. Jesus is saying, I am true, and my words are true, and you can count on them. We want to live true lives. We want them to count. We want them to mean something. Jesus' words are true and give us the path in which to walk and a firm foundation upon which to stand. We can build our life on Jesus' words. What he says about saving us from our sins by his death is true, and we can count on it. We can count, we can follow Jesus, and he will lead us on a good path. We can count on it. There is hope after the grave. Jesus will resurrect us and bring peace on earth and communion with God. We can count on that. That I should love my neighbor as myself and put others ahead of me because that is what God wants. It's right and true. And we can count on it. We have a firm foundation upon which we can stand. I don't know if you're familiar with the Tower of Pisa, also, of course, known as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. 
little background on it. It's actually built in 1173, and it was intended to stand vertically and function as a bell tower. The foundation was made of limestone and lime mortar. However, it was dug only nine feet deep and built on dense clay, which was not a very stable place to put a 14,500-ton tower. The weight started to compact the soil until it found the weakest point and started sinking in one side. In fact, the tower began to lean shortly after construction began. And for this reason, construction was resumed, halted in 1178, and not resumed until 1272. When the construction was resumed, because of the lean, the floors were designed to be taller on one side than the other. And thus, the tower actually has a curve to it. Efforts have been made over the centuries to try to shore up the faulty foundation. 800 tons of lead were installed on one side to stabilize the lean. The bells were removed to relieve some of the weight. Keep in mind, it was meant to be a bell tower. Cables were installed to help prevent leaning. 50 cubic yards of soil were removed in 1990, and then 77 tons of soil were removed in 2008 to stabilize the movement. All of these efforts to try to fix the initial problem that the tower should never have been built on that foundation. Because Jesus' words are true, they are a foundation we can build our life upon. It will never sink or shift or give way. So do so. Commit yourself to obeying God's will found in Jesus' words. How to live your life. How to do your job. How to love your spouse. How to raise your kids. Because Jesus is not only the way, he is the truth. He's not just a great teacher. He brings us the very words of God. That leads me to my last misconception that some of the people have of Jesus, that he's simply another religious figure. The people believe that Jesus is just another religious leader like all the other rabbis and teachers, but he's not. He's more than that. Verse 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. This work was most likely the healing of the paralytic. Remember at the pool of Bethesda, who had been an invalid for 38 years, Jesus healed him, and it was on the Sabbath. Jesus said, Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. In other words, the Mosaic law said when you have a child, it must be circumcised on the eighth day. But what if the eighth day was the Sabbath? The Mosaic law also says you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. But the Mosaic law says you're supposed to circumcise on the eighth day. So if it's on the Sabbath, which one are you supposed to do? They favored one law over the other. They circumcised on the Sabbath, even though it was the Sabbath. Jesus says in verse 23, if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Jesus chose to heal a man whose legs had been paralyzed for 38 years. He decided that was more important than the Mosaic law saying not to work. 
to heal the whole man. And the crowd is upset. And Jesus is saying, you hypocrites, you'll circumcise a man on the Sabbath. But you're saying this man is not allowed to be healed on the Sabbath? What's Jesus saying here? He's saying you misunderstand what I'm really about. You think I'm just another religious leader like those you already have. But I have come to love people. I've come to see them, to heal them, to tell them that there is nothing more important than God who loves them. I've come to set captives free. The crowd doesn't care about the paralytic, that he's been paralyzed for 38 years. Neither do the religious leaders, but Jesus does. In fact, he's the only one who does. See, all the religious leaders, all they want is for the people to toe the line, to obey the list of rules that they've created. They don't care about the people. But Jesus cares. Jesus saw the paralytic when no one else did, and he healed him when he was helpless. Many of us think that Jesus is just like all the other religious leaders. He doesn't really care about us. He's simply got his long list of rules that we have to obey. And when we disobey, we will incur his wrath. In fact, he's just waiting with his ruler in his hand. We're just a cog in the machine. But nothing could be further from the truth. You see, Jesus sees you. He loves you when you're broken, when you're messed up. When you're not that obedient and you're far from him, he comes and he finds you and is tender and compassionate. He heals you and makes you right. Do you constantly feel like you don't make the cut? That you fall short? That Jesus doesn't care about me or he's angry at me? See Jesus for who he really is a compassionate and merciful God that delights over you and wants to give you the best. You're not a cog in the machine. You're his child. So you see, Jesus is not just a charismatic leader. He's a crucified savior. He's not just a human teacher. He brings to us the very words of God. And he's not just another religious leader. He genuinely loves and cares for us. For when we see Jesus as he truly is, we will bow down and worship him. For he is worthy of our love and our adoration. I pray that by his grace that we may see him for who he truly is today. And that we may give our hearts to him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that the way that you reveal yourself is through your cross, through dying for us. We thank you that you bring us the truth, the very words of God, that we can stand upon them and build a life that's true and worthy. And we thank you that you uh, genuinely care for us and love us and are about us and, has put, and have put us at the center of your ministry. 
God, help us to see you as you really are. Help us to put our trust and our faith in you and to follow you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.